0: Today, we're covering Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 to 13. And the main theme is, I am coming quickly. Who said that? Yes. So, last week we finished looking at the river of the water of life and what it would be like living in the New Jerusalem. And this week we start to study some of the parting words in the book of Revelation. They're spoken by an angel, they're spoken by Jesus different parts and we find invitation comfort and some warnings so as what you'd expect at the end of the book of revelation so let's pray then we'll read all of chapter 22 father thank you for the invitation to come and partake of the river of the water of life and to eat from the tree of life and Lord, abundant blessings eternal satisfaction eternal joy And we just thank you for all these wonderful things you promised us. And Lord, we just pray that we'll be living in anticipation and expectation of your soon return. And therefore, as John says, he who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Help us to say no to the things of the world and yes to you, because we know we have something so awesome just around the corner. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's read Revelation chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign for ever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God! And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, Let him be holy still. Verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come! And let him who hears say, Come! And let him who thirsts, Come! Whoever desires, let him take the water of life. Freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So what does the word Maranatha mean? Come, Lord Jesus. Yeah, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. So we're going to start in verse 6. We covered verses 1 to 5 last week. And we'll get through to verse 13, God willing. So verse 6 it says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So I've titled this section, The Time of Jesus' Second Coming is Near. So verse 6, it says, Then he said to me, Who is the he? Who is speaking? Well, if you go back to Revelation 21 verse 9, you'll find that it's one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues who came and talked to John. And this same angel is still talking to John. And what's his message? Well, it says, These words are faithful and true. So everything we have learned about the New Jerusalem and our wonderful future relationship with God isn't too good to be true. It sounds too good to be true, but it's not. It's real. We can't imagine it. We can't even comprehend it. But it's going to be true. John assures us that it is in fact faithful and true. So why is this important? Because no matter how dark things get down here on earth, our future in the direct presence of God, is a certainty. So hold on and keep your eyes on Jesus and the new Jerusalem he will prepare for us. Now, verses 6 and 7, it says, the things which must shortly take place, and I am coming quickly. So, the angel is talking about the suddenness of these events, right? And then suddenly, Jesus just starts talking. He's kind of like interrupting. It's all part of the plan. So the angel's talking, and suddenly John hears Jesus say, I am coming quickly. And, And Jesus continues. But why is Jesus breaking in and telling us this? Because we might say that, well, it's been... Almost 2,000 years since Jesus spoke the words, I am coming quickly. So now we ask the question, what did Jesus mean when he said quickly? Well, in the Greek language, the word quickly means suddenly. So what Jesus was saying is that when he does come back, it will happen very rapidly. It will take people by surprise. It's like a woman who is pregnant. For nine months, she is waiting and waiting, and then guess what? In just a few minutes, sometimes for some women, or a few hours, and hopefully not a few days, she goes into labor and delivers a baby. So when the baby has decided that it was too crowded in there, well, he didn't take long to come out. And that's what it's like with Christ. When it's time for him to come, then all these events will happen very rapidly. Now, another question worth asking is this. The early church expected Jesus' return soon. They were expecting Jesus' return in their day, like back in the 1st century, 2nd century. Were they wrong, or did Jesus mislead them? Well, neither of those statements or questions are true. Okay, They were not wrong, and nor were they misled by Jesus. This is the point, right? God wants to keep all generations expectant, watching, and ready for his return. We're going to look at why in a little while, and that's a part of this message today, is why we need to be expecting and living in anticipation. So I'm going to read a few verses, and we're going to look for the common theme in these verses. Titus 2, to 13 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, so according to Titus, chapter two, verses eleven to thirteen, what's our motive for denying ungodliness and worldly lust, living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope? and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We don't want to be found doing something shameful when he comes back. And we can go on to 1 Corinthians 1, 7-8. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? Again, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, purity. Philippians three twenty 20-21. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, Using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. It's very similar to first Corinthians chapter fifteen verses fifty one to fifty three, talking about the rapture. First John chapter three verses two and three, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. So, can you see the common theme in those verses? It's hope, expectation, anticipation. And thinking about it, I believe that hope is the essence of life. It's what keeps us going. Without hope, there's nothing to live for, and we end up depressed and in despair. All too often, we hear of people committing suicide, people taking their life because they have no hope. They can't see out of the hole that they're in. But with hope, we can endure anything. Nothing is too difficult or too hard for us. And there's these verses in Romans, which show how our hope is linked to our salvation. And why I'm reading this is because as a Christian, one of the things that we have in Christ is hope. So, Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. We can rejoice too. Who? Christians, right? Believers. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Okay? Bad times, yeah? Hope gives us this ability to rejoice in bad times. We're going to find out why in a sec. So we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Again, confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. What do we just read in Revelation? these words are faithful and true there will be no disappointment yeah for we know how dearly god loves us because he has given us the holy spirit to fill our hearts with his love so i'm going to read verse 5 again in romans chapter 5 and this hope will not lead to disappointment these words are faithful and true for we know How dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So one of the main reasons that we have this hope is because we have relationship with God. And when we're in relationship with God, we have his love in our hearts. So what are we hoping and eagerly waiting for? Well, it's Jesus. It's the rapture. When Jesus comes to get us at the rapture and we get a new glorified resurrection bodies. And only then will we, in his direct presence, be able to see and know him as he sees and knows us. And this is going to be truly mind-blowing. And we've read this a few times before, but I'm going to read it again. It's First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, the rapture. Prophetically, it could have happened at any time since the creation of the church on the day of Pentecost. So with the rapture, there's nothing that must happen first. So coming back to this idea or the question that I put to you, was Jesus lying to them when he said, you know, be expecting me to come, you know? Could he have come back then? Well, yes, absolutely, because there's no preconditions for the rapture. Jesus can come and get his church at any time. Okay, There's nothing that must happen first when it comes to the rapture. Now, as far as the tribulation goes, there are some things that must happen first. There are things that must take place, conditions that must be met. Jesus says you know, a lot of things would happen. We'll cover it, talk about that in a second. But this is why as Christians, Christians in all ages can get excited because the rapture can happen at any time. Now, why are we getting more excited now? Well, the prophecies concerning the start of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ, some of these are Israel, the wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, pestilence, famines, sin abounding, all these things, right? These prophecies concerning the start of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ are all being fulfilled before our very eyes. We are living in the last days before the seven-year tribulation begins when the Antichrist is revealed. So the main point here is that if the tribulation and the second coming of Christ are imminent, then the rapture is even more imminent. Does that make sense? If the tribulation and the second coming of Christ are imminent because of all these prophecies being fulfilled, which must happen before those things happen, then the rapture is even more imminent. Now, Going on with verse 7 in Revelation chapter 22, it says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This brings us right back to the start of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And David Guzik has a quote here. He says, This blessing reminds us that prophecy gives us a word to keep, not merely material for interesting discussions and debates. The main intent of prophecy is to lead us to trust and obey God and apply his truth to the way we live. So that's the reason we study prophecy. Now, verses 8 and 9. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw... I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he, the angel, said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So here John is falling down to worship the angel. I can understand. What's going on? John is overwhelmed. I'm just going to put myself in his shoes. He's overwhelmed. He's hearing the voice of Jesus. This angel, glorious angel, is speaking to him, revealing amazing things, giving him assurances. And he goes, Wow, (laughs) you know, you must be fantastic. And he goes to, you know, bow down before the angel. It's happened before. It happened before in chapter 19, verse 10. Same kind of situation. But the angel says the same thing to John. Worship God. See that you do not do that. Worship God. And verse 9 it says, For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. So compared to God, both angels and humans are servants of God, who worked together to bring glory and honor to God. So this mighty angel having great authority, this is one of the angels that had the bowls, the seven bowls of the last plagues that were thrown down onto the earth. One of these angels came down and delivered a message and his glory illuminated the earth. He's in the presence of God. He's a part of the, you know, bringing judgments to the earth. And yet, how does he describe himself? As a servant of God. And this is the attitude that we should have. Luke 17.10 In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. And that's the attitude that this angel had. As glorious and as powerful as he won, he just considered himself to be an unworthy servant who had simply done our duty. So what this means, application for us, is that there should be no boasting in my accomplishments as I know that everything that I accomplish is only through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 And I must remember that without Jesus I can do nothing. That's John 15.5 So now I want to move on to an application. Again and again in Revelation we have evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. The main point here is that no created being, whether human or angel, should ever be worshipped because no created being is worthy or deserving of our worship. And I want to point out that Jesus receives the worship of angels and of men. And this is a very strong argument for the deity of Jesus. He receives worship, therefore he must be God. So firstly in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, it says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And remember, firstborn here means someone of the highest position and honor. Jesus, as God, has the highest position and honor and therefore is worthy of being worshipped. And in Matthew 8, verses 2 and 3, And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, Jesus, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So this leper comes and worships him. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, don't do that. No, he accepts that worship. Matthew fourteen thirty three. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Those in the boat would be the disciples, right? What were the disciples doing with Jesus when he was on earth? Worshiping him. Truly, you are the Son of God. You are God. And John nine thirty seven to 38. And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is that guy that Jesus asked him to pick up his mat and to get up and walk at the Pool of Bethesda there. And basically... Jesus comes to get him, uh, to talk to him again, because he doesn't know who healed him. And he reveals himself to him as the Messiah. And what does this man do? He worships him. Lord, I believe. Now, a further application. Is it right to pray to someone? So, the question soon becomes, is praying to someone the same as worshipping them? And the answer is a definite yes. So praying to someone is the same as worshipping them. Why? Okay. Well, when we pray to God, we are admitting that we need his help. That's what prayer is. It's dependence upon God, right? And one of the clues that helps us to know if we're depending on God is, are we praying? Because prayer is us expressing our dependence on God. So, when we pray to God, we are admitting that we need his help. Directing our prayers to anyone other than God is robbing God of the glory that is his alone. And that's a quote from gotquestions.org. Also, some say, if a saint in heaven delivers a prayer to God, it is more effective than our praying to God directly. This concept is blatantly unbiblical. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we... Believers here on earth have direct access to God and can approach the throne of grace with confidence, boldness. Yeah. No saint can take Jesus' place. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. First Timothy two five. There is no one else who can mediate with God for us. Since Jesus is the only mediator, Mary and the saints cannot be mediators. Further, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ himself is interceding for us before the Father. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7.25 With Jesus himself interceding for us, Why would we need Mary or the saints to intercede for us? Whom would God listen to more readily than his only begotten Son? Romans 8.26.27 says the Holy Spirit is also interceding for us. With the second and third persons of the Trinity already interceding for us before the Father, why would we need to have Mary or the saints interceding for us? That's another quote from gotquestions.org. You can search prayer to the saints in Mary. So, is a good summary. I just wanted to highlight that because it's the same thing. Some people pray to angels. And when you're praying to angels, it's the same thing as worshipping angels. You're taking the glory away from God. You should be praying to God, not to angels, not to a saint, not to anyone else. All right, the next part in Revelation 22 is verses 10 and 11, and it says, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. So, This section here I've titled, Do Not Seal the Book. Teach it. Get it out there. That's what God wants. That's what he means here. Do not seal the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, the time is at hand, as we've spoken to before, refers to the rapture, and then the tribulation and second coming. And we know the rapture can happen at any time. And the tribulation and second coming are soon. Now, all these events foretold in the book of Revelation up to chapter 19 relate to the people living now. Some people go up in the rapture and some people will go into the tribulation. Now, I want to just... Compare this to the Old Testament prophecy in Daniel 8:26 when God told Daniel to seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. you know back then, it was really hard to understand prophecy. Daniel says, "I don't get it, I don't blame him." You have the first and second coming prophecies all jumbled in with each other. You have conflicting ideas, you know, opposites. You know, is Jesus the king or is Jesus a suffering servant? It was very difficult to discern what was going on. And so God just says, seal up the vision for it first to many days in the future. Now in saying that, God did give plenty of warning that the Savior would come at a particular time and with certain signs and that all happened. And the Pharisees missed that. But as far as the end times prophecies, seal it up for it refers to many days in the future. But with the fulfilling of all the prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ and the extra revelation we have concerning the second coming of Christ in the New Testament through Christ and the apostles, the prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ and the surrounding events have become so much clearer and much more easy to understand and of course much more relevant okay, because they affect us directly. So when pastors or ministers refuse to teach prophecy they are rebelling against God's direct command to not seal the words of this prophecy, of this book. For the time is at hand. This is important. It needs to be taught now. What did Paul teach to the Thessalonians when he was there for three weeks? End times. He was teaching about the Antichrist. He was teaching about the tribulation. He was teaching about what's going to happen first. Yeah? He was there for three weeks. He taught all that. It was important. Part of a pastor's role is to equip the saints, okay? And part of that equipping the saints is to teach prophecy. Revelation 19.10 says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So Valvod says concerning this, This means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, teaching prophecy is all about Jesus, and it should focus our eyes on Him. The Amplified Bible says this really well. I like this. I'm going to read Revelation 19.10 from the Amplified Bible. It's just the last part of verse 10. It says, For the substance, essence of truth revealed by Jesus is the spirit of all prophecy, the vital breath, the inspiration of all inspired preaching and interpretation of the divine will and purpose, including both mine and yours. Now we come to verse 11, and I've titled this, A Warning to Repent While There is Still Time. So verse 11 says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still he who is holy let him be holy still to explain this i'm going to read out three quotes the first one is from david guzik the thought here is probably since jesus is coming so suddenly there won't be time for change there will be no time for last minute repentance but there is time now if what you have read in revelation hasn't changed you There isn't much hope. Again, that's what David Guzik said. Now, from Robinson, he says, It is the hopelessness of the final state of the wicked which is here pictured. The states of both the evil and the good are now fixed forever. There is no word here about a second chance hereafter. Another quote from Valverde. If the warnings of this book are not sufficient, there is no more that God has to say. i repeat that one. If the warnings of this book are not sufficient, there is no more that God has to say. And I read those three quotes because they each sum up nicely the main point here. I think it's pretty clear that If the truth presented in the book of Revelation concerning the victory of Jesus Christ over all his enemies, including sin and death, and the absolute proof of his authority over everything, if that is not enough to convince anyone, then nothing else will be. We see Jesus in all his risen glory, power, and authority. What else do you need to believe in him? Now we go to verses 12 and 13, and here Jesus declares, I am coming quickly. Maranatha. Okay. So, verse 12 and 13, it says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 12. The word behold is used when God wants to get our attention, right? Jesus is saying to all the believers in the church age, wake up, get ready, pay attention. I'm coming suddenly. And his message has always been, be ready. So Matthew 24, 44, it says, you also must be ready all the time for the son of man will come when least expected. Be ready and behold, I am coming quickly. I'll read Matthew 24, verse 44 again. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Now, why is this important? Well, verse 12 goes on in Revelation 22. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. This is why it's important to be ready. And Jesus told several parables that illustrated this concept, this point. I'm just going to read one. It's Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51. So this is Jesus telling a story to illustrate this point. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while? And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, let's have a look at this parable. In the first example, the first part of it, Jesus says that if the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. So, what is this reward? Well, we know it as the beamer seat judgment, a judgment of rewards referring to the olympic games the grecian olympic games we know this judgment as the bema judgment and there our faithfulness here in this world will be rewarded by greater opportunities to serve greater authority in the next and the bema judgment is described in first corinthians 11 12 to 15 this is a reward that jesus is talking about right? Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, and that foundation is the gospel, it's Christ, Christ alone. Salvation through Christ alone, yeah? So, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So we talked about this before. It's not a judgment of salvation. If you're at this judgment, you're already in heaven. You are going to stay in heaven. You'll stay with Christ. It says... He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. You cannot lose your salvation, I believe. But haven't been living a life of faith, then when you get there, you won't have much to show and you'll be smelling a bit like smoke, as we keep on saying. So, another thing to notice about the faithful servant is that he is not surprised when the master returns. Okay. In that parable that Jesus spoke in Matthew, the first servant is not surprised. Now for me, I'm living in a very sweet moment-by-moment expectation that could be today. Every day, the anticipation builds. If Jesus doesn't come back in my lifetime, that's okay. But the result of my expecting his soon return is that I really want to be found faithful when Jesus returns. I don't want to be doing, watching, saying, or thinking anything shameful or sinful when Jesus comes back to snatch me up from this earth and take me to heaven to be where he is. John 14, 1 and 2. And just another side note here, a bit off topic, but I think it's important to mention. This is another evidence for the pre-trib rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture. The rapture happened before the seven-year tribulation begins. Why? Well, if the rapture happens mid-tribulation or post-tribulation, there is no sense of anticipation of the rapture. Instead, people will be looking for the coming of the Antichrist and the start of the tribulation, and they will be dreading the persecution that they will experience during at least part of the tribulation, either half of it or all of it, depending on your point of view of the mid-trib or post-trib. There's no comfort in this. But in the pre-tribulation rapture interpretation of the scriptures, as you can read in First Thessalonians 4.18, there is hope, there is expectation for Jesus to come and remove us from this world before the seven years of judgment begin, and that's why it gives us this expectation. It could happen at any time. Now let's go back to the Jesus parable, Matthew 24, and let's go have a look at the second servant, the wicked one. So, notice the motivation or reasoning of the second servant. He says, But what if the servant is evil and thinks, My master won't be back for a while? So my application from this is that without the hope and anticipation of Jesus soon return for his bride, the church, it is much more likely that people will soon start living for themselves. Now, I'm going to use an analogy here to try and help you understand this. Imagine the parents have a couple of teenage kids or just let's say one teenage boy, All right, teenage boy, and they're trusting their house with a teenage boy, because they're going on a holiday. Now, they go away, and what does the teenage boy do? Well, they like to have their friends around, and, you know, they might have lots of pizza and, you know, games nights and things like that. And, of course, you know, typically, I know at least for me, I wasn't really interested in tidying up when I finished. So what's the house going to look like after a while? Pretty poor, right? So... What happens is that the teenager knows that mum and dad are coming back on a certain date and the day before they come back, he looks at the house and he goes, "Ah!" and he starts cleaning up. And of course, you know, if he has any respect for his parents, he will clean the house up and the parents will come back and go, oh, well done, son, for keeping the house so clean. But what if his parents never told him when they were going to come back? Hey son, we're going on holiday, we're not sure how long we're going to be. We could come back at any time. Is he going to let the house get all dirty? He's thinking, what if they come back tomorrow? Well, I better clean the house today, yeah? So that's the kind of idea or the principle we have here. The rapture can happen at any time, and therefore I want to be ready. I don't want my life to be in a mess when Jesus returns for me. Or even if I die tomorrow of a heart attack, if God calls me away in a heart attack, then I want to be doing something that's going to be glorifying Him when that happens. Now, back to Revelation chapter 22 and in verse 12. And it says, And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now, another potentially troubling or difficult verse here. There's been some confusion over this verse. People ask, does that mean we are saved by our works? He's going to give to us each one according to his work. I thought we were saved by faith. Okay, well, what's it talking about here, salvation or reward? It's talking about reward, isn't it? Okay. So, we're rewarded for the works we do for Christ. So, I want to just spend a little while here talking about faith and works and how the two are properly related. What this verse does show is that living faith will have works associated with it, it will produce works. And we will be rewarded for everything. That is done by faith at the beam of seat judgment. And John Corson has a really good way of saying it. He says, It is not of faith and works that saves a man, it is not faith or works, it is faith that works. So here are some verses that illustrate faith that works. So Titus chapter 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things are. I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God, that is, those who have faith, should be careful to maintain good works. So that means it's possible to start well but not finish well, right? We want to finish well, yeah? We want to win the race. And James chapter 2, verses 14-26. to 26, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say, You have faith, but don't show it by your actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? The answer there is no. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. (laughs) But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now some may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is only one God, or that there is one God? Good for you! Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember? Here James goes into an example to make his point. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? And notice, shown to be right with God by his actions, not made right with God by his actions, yeah? So, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? This is Genesis 22 when God asked Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Verse 22 in James, you see his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. James continues, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road just as a body is dead without breath so also faith is dead without good works rahab demonstrated her faith in god's declaration that he would defeat the inhabitants of the land of canaan by hiding the spies yeah if she didn't really believe that god through the israelites would defeat jericho then she wouldn't have hid the spies So it's quite simple. What you believe affects how you behave. And the same was true for Abraham. Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he went to offer Isaac, his son, on the altar. Abraham wasn't made right with God when he offered Isaac, but rather shown to be right with God. His works were proof or evidence of his genuine faith. And another quote from John Corson. It is not faith and works that saves a man. It is not faith or works. It is faith that works. All Abraham was doing on Mount Moriah was showing the reality of what had taken place in his life years earlier when he simply believed God. So I hope you can get that. It's as simple as that. Your works are the proof that you have been saved. It's your proof that you have God living inside of you, giving you the desire and the will to do those works. And again, the last statement is the most important. But our obedience proves we're saved for true faith works. And another way of saying this is that works are a fruit of our salvation. We don't get to heaven because of our works. Good works naturally follow when we put our faith in Christ as our savior now this leads us to false converts there's a lot of people around unfortunately who are not showing many good works and that is why Jesus declares to them in Matthew 7:23 I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness and practice there is in the present tense. That is, they continue to practice lawlessness. They have never stopped practicing lawlessness. There was never a change in their lives. There was never repentance. And the opposite of that too is those who make their lives basically full of good works but never actually have faith. It's not just works that we get to heaven. You need to have faith first. So if you're someone who professes to be a Christian, but you don't live or think like a true disciple of Christ, then beware, okay? Have a look at 2 Corinthians 13.5 and take the test. It could save your eternal life. I'm not going to go into that now. Now, back to Revelation 22, verse 13. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So after this warning about him coming back quickly, the reminder, he's coming back quickly. He says, I am God. Okay? He's reminding us that this message is from him and he is God. This is a big reason to take this call to attention seriously. Now, Alpha and Omega, the term Alpha and Omega is applied to God in Revelation chapter one, verse eight, and twenty-one, verse six, meaning that it is a title that belongs only to God. Now, here it's obvious that it's Jesus speaking. So, Jesus is here making the direct and unmistakable claim that he is the Alpha and Omega. He is Jehovah God. He is Yahweh God. There is no clearer way for Jesus to proclaim or declare that he is God Almighty, Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to say it. The I am, the great I am. Also, in verse 13, it says the first and the last, and again, the first and the last, is also irrefutable proof that Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord. Back in Isaiah 41 verse 4, God calls himself the first and the last. So Isaiah 41 verse 4 says, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So what these names show about God is that he has always existed and will always exist. He has no beginning and he has no end. Specifically here, it shows that Jesus is the eternal God who has always existed and will always exist forever and ever. So, Jesus is God. God never lies. He's coming back quickly or suddenly. So, be ready. Father, thank you for this word directly from the mouth of Jesus that he is coming back quickly and his reward is with him. Lord, help us to be like that first servant in the parable in Matthew. Help us to be faithfully serving you, not being taken by surprise. To be living in anticipation of your soon return. Wanting to be found pure and blameless when you come. Lord, help us to understand that the things we give up here Lord, we're going to miss out on a little bit of fun, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of short-term pleasure. But Father, what we gain by giving these things up now is so much better. The glory to come is so much better. The rewards are so far beyond our understanding and comprehension. We don't even know what they are. You can't even adequately describe how good it's going to be for us. So help us to remember that, yeah, it's all worth it, Father. And this hope that we have of your soon return will purify us. So help us to keep dwelling on the fact that you will be coming soon. Lord, to keep our eyes on the heavenly city, to remember that we are pilgrims and strangers on this earth, sojourners. Our citizenship belongs to heaven. So we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.